Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, I speak with Professor Michael Cardew-Hall, who currently is the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Innovation at the Australian National University. Michael leads strategic initiatives to build growth in research and education through partnerships with industry, government and not-for-profit organisations. He was previously CEO of ANU Connect Ventures, a pre-seed venture capital fund associated with the ANU, and holds a seat on the ANU Connect Ventures Investment Committee. He also has held uh, the positions of Head of Department of Engineering, Deputy Dean, and Acting Dean of the College of Engineering and Computer Science at the ANU. Uh, Professor Kaju Hall is also a chartered engineer and a fellow of the Institution of Mechanical Engineers and the Institution of Engineers Australia. He's also held technical and management positions with GEC and Rolls-Royce Aero Engines in the UK prior to joining the ANU back in 1993. He has been an active researcher in the area of CAD computer um, aided manufacturing manufacture, application of machine learning and knowledge-based systems to manufacturing, and the optimization of manufacturing processes, particularly in sheet metal forming. He joins me in the studio. Uh, Professor Kaju Hall, thanks very much for joining me on GovComs. You're welcome. You've been busy. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long career. (laughs) How are things? And I think probably context is always a great... uh, place to start. You, ha- you have a big job there in, in terms of, you know, the innovation role, the Pro Vice-Chancellor of Innovation at the ANU. But perhaps before we get to that, um, education as a sector globally has really copped it, hasn't it, as part of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we can talk about ANU in a minute, but what's your helicopter view on, on the future of um, higher education uh, globally as a result of the, of the pandemic? Uh, well, that's the crystal ball that we'd all like to know the answer to. Um, it has had a significant impact. There's no question of that. Um, if you look all over the world, the you know it's the mobility of international students um, that, are, that has really sort of supported, particularly in Australia, supported a lot of our growth in, in our in our higher education sector here, um, and that has also then allowed the universities to you know fund a lot of research from that from that income as well, mm. um, and that has just been put on hold. So it is very very challenging. Um, I think what this will do is that uh, it will make it make it make Australian higher education much more competitive. Uh, and what I mean by that is that if we look to see where those students may go to as the borders open up, there's a good chance they could go over to Europe, UK, Canada. Uh, the US. And um, I think our competitiveness in those markets for those international students is going to be challenged over the next six to 12 months. Okay. Did, so they'll be more likely to go to the UK or to the US or to Canada no. rather than come to Australia? So, no, I think that there's always a demand for Australia. And Australia has a high quality and a high profile, um, in, in particularly in, the, in Asia, Southeast, Northeast Asia. So, so there'll always be a demand there. Um, but it's a case of they will go where they feel as though they can actually, A, they're welcomed and, B, 
where they can actually, where they can get in. So earlier in the week, we saw that uh, Canada opened up its borders in October to international students. Right. Uh, if they're finishing their studies now in China or anywhere else in Asia, they'll go to Canada because they can go there. Um, they're not going to put their education on hold. So once then you get a, a sort of a stream of students going there who then, when they graduate to other students, have what an experience they've had, it sets up. So, you know, that's what we've benefited from in Australia. People have seen it as a, as a safe place, high quality education, lots of opportunity here. Um, if people don't come here, the word of mouth won't get back. And that's our biggest challenge. And so how then does the university adapt itself? Because it's not as if you can say, oh, all right, okay, well, we'll just go down this path because it's, you know, it's not that easy just to turn one line of growth and revenue and turn another one on almost immediately. No, no, it's very hard. And particularly in, in education where students are coming in for a number of years, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a fairly long time constant to it. Um, so, so I think there is... You know, we've been looking at how we can offer more and more um, of our courses and programs online. Yeah. Um, and so that has been something that we've, we've really invested in and, and accelerated, as, as others have. Um, I think that will see us uh, do that rather than the exception of become more part of part and parcel of what we do all the time. Mm -hmm. So I think that will be a, a significant stepping stone. I think also what we'll see is that we, at the ANU in particular, we, we sort of focused in and we accepted that we were going to have less students anyway. That's part of our strategy. But what is it you can offer which is of uniqueness so that what is on the on-campus component and what can be done off-campus, mm. particularly at the master's level? And I think we'll see an evolution of, of delivery modes and blended delivery modes, which are not about all coming on campus. There will be a sort of a mixture of how you make, uh, mix that up. And we might even look at how we might offer components offshore in different places. Many universities do that. Um, in Australia, we've never done that. We may do that. There's a there's a cost associated, but I think it's blended delivery. What's the mode, and then uh, uh, what's the experience, which is unique that you can offer that, that others aren't offering. Mm. It's interesting, though, isn't it? The, the, like even the competitive context for for higher education, because I, I I read with interest the other day that Google is now offering offering certifications, and when you start to see the big platforms starting to come into higher education in a big way. Ugh, that must, be, must must sort of sort of send a shiver down your spine that you know there's another competitor coming onto the landscape and offering you know high quality certification at an absolute bargain basement price. Indeed, and the reality is you probably can't go head to head on you know direct offerings. This is why we've got you know what is the role of the university? What is the experience that we're offering that you can have? Um, and so you've got to differentiate yourself from those you know, those new entrants into the, into the sector. Um, and, and it's going to be around for us, it'll be, you know, I think that'll be more at the sort of sub-undergraduate. You know, we, we talk a lot about micro-credentials now. I think Google, you will have, certainly have uh, an edge in some of that area. But it's how do you actually then articulate up into, um, into accredited degree programs now. Uh, that's sort of an edge, you know, an edge that we have at the moment. Um, but then, then what is the experience? What does the student want? Does the student just want to get content and, uh, you know, get a, a, an accredited uh, a course? Or do they want an experience where they can come to a campus or an institution and actually spend time with leaders in their field? Yep. Uh, now, 
you know, one might say in certain areas Google can do that, but in other areas the universities are still still the you know the, the bastion of where you find uh, the experts in a whole range of uh, areas which are in, more in that humanities and social sciences as well as the sciences and other areas. Mm. So one of the, this podcast obviously focuses on, on communication in all, all its forms, be it internal communication, external communication, you know, storytelling so, such that, um, uh, you know, objectives, business objectives can be uh, yeah. achieved. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, when you're in a position where you're in such flux where it's not settled to exactly what it is your story is going to be, it makes it a little bit hard to go to the market with a story when the story's not actually set up yet. So as you're saying, like there's a lot of considerations that you've got to uh, land on before you can then start to tell that story. So what's that process then of trying to move through the the development of that story such that you can get into the marketplace as quickly as possible to uh, start to position yourselves as, you know, this is the ANU offering? Uh, so it's interesting that you use sort of frame it in that term, that terminology. We have had a project called the ANU story, <laughs> okay. uh, which we started at the beginning of the year prior to all this, um, oh, okay. but it was specifically to actually what is the narrative we want to project out, not just around for our undergraduates and our postgraduate students, but also more generally for, for, the, for the community around what the ANU is about. So that is an active project that's been ongoing. Um, it comes down to, you know, what is our history, what is our role within the nation, and this is where we take our role as being the national university very yeah. seriously. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's, that sort of starts as the bedrock of what, what at, so the start of our narrative is. Yeah. And then we're sort of building upon that um, and then building upon, you know, the, the, the role that we have for, for you know, Australian society and Australian, the Australian economy overall. Um, and then we play into that, you know, what is it that, that um, our start, the st- students that come in, what, you know, how, what are the modes by which they, you know, what are the experiences they're going to have on campus? So mm. we focus very much now on also the student experience they may have and which is why we spend so much time and effort uh, building lots of accommodation on campus. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful build. Uh, well, it's a, a beautiful campus now, isn't it? You know, not only are the beautiful trees and the rolling areas and all the rest of it, but now you've got those modern facilities there, were just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we were sorely in need of new facilities. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, and there has been a, a once-in-a-generation investment in a whole range of the new Canberra precinct in the centre for yeah. the students. Yeah. Uh, New halls of residence. You know they've got the Bruce Wright Hall uh, complex. Uh, you know they, they. It's basically regenerated the whole of the, the campus. But also, by putting so many students on campus, you create a vibrant yeah. uh, life on campus, which is fairly unique. You get it in the US and the, in the UK. You get that vibrancy on campus. It's less common in Australia, and we're just fortunate we've got a, a lovely campus and we've managed to develop it well. But when do you think it may fill up again? You know, have you got any idea at all? Could you say, you know, it's going to be five years, it's going to be three years, it's going to be ten years? Uh, I, I Impossible. Who, who knows? Yeah. It really depends. We believe as soon as the borders are open... Yeah. Uh, the the rate of in, the rate of return will be probably higher than we anticipate, yeah. but that's all finger in the air stuff at the moment. So in terms of just returning to that narrative, the, uh, the you know the story of the Australian National University, just how important is it that it is 
the Australian National University, and it really is the federal government's university in many ways. Correct, yeah. Now, we're the only university that's actually under uh, federal government uh, okay. Com- Commonwealth Act. Um, everyone, all the others are under state acts. Um, so we are, you know, the Commonwealth's university, um, and we have a special relationship. Um, and I think it, it is important. It was established... Uh, as a research-only institution. So it w- we had no undergraduates until 1960. And that frames what the, what the institution was about. It's about yeah. doing research in areas that help the government evolve and do post, uh, uh, post-war reconstruction effectively. And so we still take that very seriously. Um, when Brian Schmidt became vice-chancellor and we put our strategic plan together under him, it, we very much focused on we are the national university, what does it mean to be the national university and what is what is our role as a national university? And that is part of the strategic plan. Um, and we're going and revisiting that now, but it's about, you know, what is our special relationship with the federal government? Mm. Um, how do we get better at engaging with agent, you know, whether, whether it's whether it's the, you know, the government itself in the minister's office or the, the uh, public service? Mm. And so we're working on with lots of agencies now about um, how do we actually, you know, work more closely around what their needs are and how we can influence that, whether it's at the policy level or even much more at the basic, you know, providing the sort of skills that they need for the the APS going forward. Mm. So really it's interesting, isn't it, you talk about that post-war reconstruction period but now it's the post-COVID reconstruction period. So the ANU will obviously play a critical role in being able to work with the the federal government to help Australia to, to recover. That is certainly our aspiration, yeah, um, and uh, certainly uh, it's something that, that, that Brian works very hard at working with, the, the, whether it's the education minister or any of the ministers or the prime minister to try and articulate what they might do. Mm. Might, might be. So just back to that narrative piece, what do you then do when COVID-19 comes along and you're, you're developing your story and it's all falling nice and all of a sudden a once-in-a-generation pandemic sideswipes your narrative? You know, how did... What do those discussions look like internally in terms of, okay, we've got to keep moving through this, we've got to keep communicating, we've got to, you know, keep engaging with stakeholders, we've got to keep people letting know, you know, we've got bad news that we've got to get out there. Like, it's it's a complex task, isn't it? It, it is. Uh, look, it, it's like and, and I, we're not alone. There are many organisations that are looking at us, but um, it has been very, very challenging. Um, it, it doesn't help um, when, you know, we first of all, we focused in on, you know, if I step through chronologically, you know, it came in. The first thing is a lot of our students couldn't, international students couldn't come back. Mm-hmm. So we've always focused on trying to provide the best experience we can for the students because yeah. that then maintains a commitment to the student and the student experience. Yeah. Whether it's they're still up, you know, back in their home countries or they're stuck in Melbourne. We've got a lot of students stuck down in Victoria who haven't been able to come back either. So... They're in the same boat. You don't have to be overseas to be sort of um, um, suffering uh, as a student in this environment. Uh, so, so you know, it, that has been always been a sort of a core, how do we maintain, you know, safety for our students. Um, we were doubly hit because we, we sort of had our first crisis when we had the, uh, I don't remember, the hailstorm came through. Yes, um, destroyed a lot of the glass houses and... Uh, it, just, it destroyed building, it destroyed University House. University House hasn't been yeah, open yeah. since then. Actually, that's true. Uh, and it won't be open until the end of next year or even 2022. Oh, really? But, yeah, it's a heritage building, so yeah. it, it's going to require a lot of res- restoration. Um, so, so we've we had you know we've so we we shut the and, and then after that it's then well, what is the best thing for our staff? So we went fairly hard and we shut the campus down. So you know we just worked through the standard um, you know things that you might do in a crisis management. We do have a very a very good well defined crisis management program. Yep. Uh, it's not the first time the university has been hit by fires and storms and other things. So we just worked out 
fair way through that. This one's just gone on a bit longer. Uh, and, the, and the, obviously the knock-on effects um, from a financial perspective are going to take a bit longer to get through. What have you learned though, about storytelling through this crisis period? What, what is it that you have to do to be successful? Uh, I think we always, and the, the, the Vice Chancellor has always maintained, first of all, you have to be as transparent and open as you possibly can. Um, there's no point in not being transparent and open. Um, but within the content of being, you know, factually correct when you go out and, and be open and transparent. And uh, so it's working through getting those messages out to the, to the community broadly as frequently as you can in a practical way. And I think that's been the, the key thing is that we've always tried to communicate. We've always tried to then keep two-way communication. We've always tried to listen to what the community is saying. Mm. And I think that's the biggest... Um, I would say it's the biggest learning, it's the biggest thing we put in place that we knew we had to. Did you have any gaps in capability, given that, you know, there's been such an acceleration to, you know, online communication, digital communication? Were you, were you ready for COVID-19? Uh, no, no, no. The biggest thing is that we had to flip everything, that we had to flip all the, all the coursework into yeah. online. Uh, no, we, you're just not ready for that. Yeah. I mean, because if you were planning for it, the investment you'd have to make will be huge. Uh, but what we did is we had an unbelievably talented workforce of academics who really just moved hell and high water to, to basically shift everything from basically face-to-face delivery to online delivery. Um, and it's not as if there's a manual, I suppose, that someone can say, hey, this is how you turn your course into, you know, an effective online. There's, there's, you can have, we do have a small, some small groups of um, education um, <clears throat> advisors who help with that. Um, so there are, there, that is a sort of a, a profession in its own right. Yeah, right. Um, we don't have it. We didn't. We didn't have a huge investment in it. We've grown that to, to a degree. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is a it, it is a skill set. How do you actually take what you normally do face to face and then actually put it in a way that's meaningful? And it, it takes a long time. You know, one hour's content delivery face to face. You know, you've got to spend like best part of a week doing one hour to yeah. get it online, and that's a huge task. Yeah. So one of the other um, responsibilities, one of the big responsibilities you have is around innovation and connecting up the university and its capability into the business sector, not just into government because really the, you know, the business sector is really where a lot of that uh, innovation collaboration uh, takes place as well. How do you go about telling the story of the ANU into the business community so they can access and, and work with you and work with the great um, minds and innovation that is actually sitting inside the university. How do you sort of make that work? Uh, so so I, I see it, there's two things, there's two ways of interacting with the university and the intellectual horsepower that's in the university. You can either take the intellectual um, um, uh, property and commercialise it and take it out, and that's one way that you have to engage. Yep. Or the other way is to go out and say, we've got this capability, what's your problem? Yep. And then match up the two and then you actually get sort of funded, either funded research or funded projects coming the other way. Um, the, the whole, you know, historically the whole innovation area and doing this effectively business development is a contact sport. You know, it's you get out there and you just meet people and you network and you uh, you try whatever angles you can. It, it's, it's no, I mean, crudely it's no different to, uh, you know, Selling, yeah, <laughs> uh, and so so you just have to build that profile. So it's about building the networks. Um, so that's at the fundamental level. So you need people. So then you need people that actually can bridge between 
the culture, which is the university culture, and the culture, which is the business culture, which are very, very different. The drivers are very different. So you have to get the right people to bridge those that can actually then, you know, do the contact inside and the contact outside and try and build those bridges. So that's 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 the norm. Um, and so that can require then getting out and uh, essentially, um, you know, if you've got a piece of IP or a piece of... Um, uh, intellectual property or, or expertise you're trying to find, you, you then, you know, you go around and try and find who might be interested in that. Um, yeah. By the same token, we do get approached. Uh, the one thing that we do have going for us um, is that uh, the ANU has got a terrific brand. Yep. Uh, once you say you're from the ANU and you go into a business or industry and you say I'm from the ANU, they, actually getting open doors is not hard. Yeah. Uh, it's then actually making sure that you understand what the issue is that, that that partner may want and actually bringing it back in and actually making sure that we have the capability and the desire on the part of the academic to actually want to work with them. Once you get that matched, it, it can just, you know, it'll take off. Mm. Um, the other area that we've uh, probably been a bit slower on but we probably uh, are, are ramping up more and more is around the whole social media. Yeah. Um, obviously there are some, some key channels to that. Um, and with with other businesses, you know, you know, LinkedIn is one of the big ones that we would we would try and exploit as much as we can. So yeah. that's something that we're building up more and more, and the same as any other business. It must be um, challenging that, like the ANU is a sprawling sort of uh, enterprise, isn't it? In many ways, you have all of the you know different colleges and schools and all the rest of it. How do you funnel? How do you get all of the good ideas? Because I'm sure there are, you know, they're in all sorts of nooks and crannies and different places. It must be. You might, have you got a system where you sort of sweep through saying, hey, who's got a good idea that we can take to the world or...? No, so uh, there are different mechanisms. The university, like all good universities around the world, is fairly devolved. And yeah. you're right, is that it's all little pockets and, you know, yeah. little uh, self-determining groups. Um, so uh, anything coming hierarchical is all, it's very difficult to do. Um, yeah. the, the way that you can do it is often we will either go out and actually get people wandering around just to see if there's any opportunities. Or the other things we might do is we might say, OK, here's a challenge. We, you know, a number of years ago we, we introduced the Grand Challenge program um, and we asked people, OK, so, you know, you articulate what you think the challenge for Australia is and then you put forward, you know, a project which we might fund it. And that can actually... Money always teases people out of the woodwork in a university. <laughs> so you put a bit of money on the table and, and, and out it comes. But it's yielded some really, really interesting capabilities and what you do is you make it a criteria it can't be just from one area you've got to say you've got to you've got to team up with say one or two other areas in order to put together your combined capabilities so we've now got our philosophers working with our computer scientists yeah, on our wow. human human uh, human uh, machine interface yeah uh, and it's looking at the ethics of uh, machine learning applications and so that's that's been pretty exciting another one is out of our psychology areas looking at uh, social cohesion yeah. Um, so, so it's it, you know it can it can tease out all sorts of things. Another big one we got is um, referred to as the zero carbon Australia, which is really about how do we actually start to produce energy at zero carbon or even you know um, negative carbon. I you know you, you put you you, know, you you reduce the carbon amount yeah. uh, by it, and it's then we link that up with our expertise around northern Australia because often we want to try and do st so we're trying to match up our HASS part of our university with our STEM part of the university, mm. and just that then attracts um, you know other partners. One that we announced last week was uh, with Optus, a strategic partnership with Optus around bushfires. 
um, a challenge, a grand challenge. They're very interested and we've got a, a bushfire centre. Um, and so it's now how do we build out the technology part of that but also match up with our school of, Fenner School of the Environment to what the environmental impacts might be as well. And there's a, it becomes multidimensional very, very quickly. So earlier in the, the conversation you, you mentioned the changing nature of... Um, Overseas students and understand that borders and all the rest of it. Uh, then the sort of evolving nature with the federal government and how does that work? What changes with industry post COVID? How does that relationship change with the university? Uh, so, I mean, this has been a continuous challenge for the thirty last thirty or forty years. So, how do you get a better interface between mm. the universities and um, and the business and industry so you can accelerate? the recovery that, w- that we require. And, you know, every government I've ever known since I've been here in Australia has had this as a, as a, as a desire. Mm-hmm. Um, it, for me, it comes down to, first of all, is that uh, there's got to be a desire on both parts and an understanding of the, the cultural drivers in That's both right. organisations. Yeah. If you don't understand that, yeah. you're, you'll always miss each other. Yeah. If you can get an alignment around those, uh, those common areas of overlap and a, an understanding of what drives both sides, you'll end up with something that might... It might um, be very successful in driving, driving forward uh, something that's mutually beneficial. Um, there are various programs around which the government have which help with that uh, through the Australian Research Council and the, the Cooperative Research Centre program, and yeah. there's a number of them that help. Um, but I think there's the biggest thing that we that you have to, that universities should be able to provide. There's a concept called innovative capacity, um, and uh, the best firms, the best businesses, have some kind of capacity to absorb even innovation. And what we find in Australia, what I've observed in Australia, is a lot of companies are of a size or a mindset that they, they are run incredibly well but incredibly lean and they, their ability to innovate is very, very limited. Yeah. So it's how do you actually perhaps take some of the capacity that's in, in universities and put them into, you know, work with businesses to allow them to absorb this, this innovative capacity. It's the one thing I think that differentiates Australian business from businesses internationally, particularly right. in Europe and the US and Japan. It's, it's interesting what you've outlined there because on, a, on another podcast that I run, it's called Work With Purpose and it's about the federal governments or the APS, the Australian Public Services, the, the, the response to COVID. And one of, the, one of the regular features of that podcast are all of the stories that you hear about the collaboration and the partnership between government and business in responding to the crisis, it happened. You know, they actually, it, it, it was a real thing in terms of supply chains and food in supply chains and all those other things. How do we then, and again, I think there's a role almost as you're outlining for the universities to sort of sit inside that collaborative, um, cooperative ecosystem that will help Australia to... Um, come out of the challenge and obviously it's not just a model uh, in Australia, it could be a model for everywhere. So clearly there's a, going to be a key role for the universities, isn't there, to sort of, you know, be a contributor and a driver, not just with government but joined up to business, leveraging the best of the university in order to, you know, create progress. Yeah, uh, and it's about how we... I mean, and you sort of alluded to, you know, in a crisis we've done so much. You know, the, the innovations that have occurred over since the beginning of the year are huge. And yeah. it, it's the same thing if you historically look at during wartime, the rate of innovation during wartime because it's, you know, an existential crisis. So, but you can't live in an existential crisis all the time. You get exhausted. So the question is how can you actually embed what you've done during those periods in a, in a more structural way? And I think it would be interesting to see whether you could actually embed elements of the university inside 
the whether it's a government department or whether it's a a, a, a company and. There've been various other schemes overseas that have tried to do this, some successfully. Um, but it, it's about how do you actually provide those places, and so you get this sort of this crossover of, of ideas and, and cultures, and, and allow, but very focused around some outputs that you yeah, try to achieve. Yeah, that's right. Some problems that need to be solved. And actually, you just give me an idea. So when the microphones stop, I might actually have a quick chat with you about that. No, because I was in a conversation in a in a government department this morning where that might. Um, uh, come together, um, again, to deliver a benefit because I actually can see that that could work really quite well, again. But I like your point about the fact that, um, you know, you've got to understand where people are coming from. If you're at cross-purposes, well, you can forget it. But I think in crisis, people have actually very quickly levelled up to where people need to understand. But just as a final question then, how do you sustain it? How do you, how do you keep it going? Because I know at senior levels in the APS, there's so much in the Australian public service, there has been a lot of change. But how do you hold on to that? You know, how do you stop the beast returning back to the way that it's always wanted to work? Uh, look, I think if you had the answer to that, overall <laughs> you'd be a very rich man. Um, uh, it, it's it, so, so you you, you, you know you obviously you got to try and systemise as much as you can. Yeah. It, but it's about it's always for me it's about culture and values. And so if you can get the right culture based upon the right set of values that are agreed, and you just keep reinforcing those cultures and values. Um, then, because what happens is that is that it's the cultures and values of the or, the parent organisation that just often creep in over time, and so you know if you've got a dynamic team that is, has got that, it's, it's just keeping that. Um, I think also what it is in any organisation it requires that sort of push up from the bottom and also an oversight from the top, yeah. and so making sure that the appropriate levels of senior leadership and through the through the organisation accept and and really support what's trying to be achieved in, in, in well, those innovative little groupings. But when those behaviours start to rear their heads again, you know, the old behaviours, the behaviours that you want to leave behind, that they've really got to be jumped on pretty severely and that's said, right. no, 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 that's not what we're doing. Because, again, I think post-COVID, um, you know, there's resources are going to be tight, so we're, we're going to have to be massively innovative in the way that we work together to get the best out of it. And... Um, I'm very optimistic, actually, about how these things can uh, come together uh, because I do think there's appropriate resources, but it is mindset. It is really cultural, and I think that's a good point that you raised there about that. So, as I say, don't go anywhere. I'm going to talk to you in a minute, but I'm going to close out the program. Um, and uh, Professor Michael Cardew-Hall, thanks for coming in to, to Gov, uh, GovComs. Yes, I'm just trying to work out which podcast I'm doing today, um, but GovComs is this very, very popular podcast about government communications and interesting there to talk to Professor Cardew-Hall about the challenges of universities connecting with audiences and connecting with their people and keeping people uh, connected to their work during such a difficult period of time and looking at this changing environment and really what sets, you know, the, the atomic particle in all of this is communication. And if we can get that bit right, if we can get the understanding right, you'll get the progress, you'll get the innovation and you'll get ultimately the impact and the benefit, which is ultimately what this is all about. Now, the other big news, as you know, is that we are hosting the GovComs Festival. Uh, it's part of the OECD's Government Aftershock Global Dialogue. And I will turn off my phone. Um, 
Yeah, after the, the OECD's Government Aftershock Global Dialogue. Uh, it is on November the 17th. It is going to be a 24-hour event. We are starting in Canberra and we are following the sun. We are going around the world and we are going to listen to people from all around the world. We're going to learn from people all around the world about what is happening in government communication and hopefully we'll pick up lots of insights or you, the listener, will pick up lots of insights. Lots of great speakers uh, being confirmed as we speak, a lot of great partnerships uh, being confirmed as we speak, and we will have more to announce over the coming weeks. So jump on to just Google uh, GovComs Festival, jump on, register. Uh, if you would like to make a, an expression of interest or a contribution, please uh, make sure you do that. Uh, it's a co-created uh uh, schedule at the moment. So certainly any contributions that you have would be gratefully accepted. So looking forward to making some big announcements in the uh, coming weeks. We are 41 days or maybe 40 days away from the launch of that particular festival, which is something that I'm very much looking forward to. And I know you are too, but thanks for coming back for uh, the uh, program again this week. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.